Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. It is the first day of a major, except it's the Australian Open, so it's the second day of that major, which means it is time for the traditional early round first Monday of a major mailbag. There's a lot of M's to juggle with, and for this occasion, something I believe I did last year, if my memory serves, uh, we are doing it live. Australia gives me the opportunity to do that. Uh, maybe I'll do it again before the tournament ends, but uh, this will be kind of a trial run. Instead of uh, doing the mailbag and posting it later, I'm going to get a chance to uh, answer some some live questions towards the end there. So uh, I did post on the YouTube community tab. I got many comments. First one is from Footfault Tennis. Historically, in the last 20 years, the U.S. Open has been the slam for a player outside the big three plus Murray to break through and win a slam. Once Rafa and Nole retire, what slams do you see taking over this role, perhaps all of them, and which do you see as being continually dominated by just a handful of players? Well, uh, first of all, I don't think that trend is going to go anywhere. The U.S. Open is going to be a a more wide open slam always in my estimation because of the physical and mental fatigue that players are experiencing by that time of year. Australia, everyone's pretty healthy and pretty fresh. So the talent is going to really dictate who is winning these matches. It's not going to be about, you know, the, the stuff that kind of sets in as the season progresses with things. Sometimes we don't even know about with players, playing through injuries and being burnt out and tired and and all of that thing that all of those things that come into play. So I actually tweeted earlier on um about why this is because day one at the Australian Open was very, very, very short on upsets. There just was not many of them. And I tweeted that it's because Exactly what I just said. Physically and mentally, players are fresh at the Australian Open and they are not at the U.S. Open. And uh, there is someone who came into my replies and uh, hit me with some really good data in this respect where I was just going off of watching year after year after year after year. I noticed these things very, very clearly, right? Uh, and I, I also go back and I look at quarterfinals results and I'm saying, okay, how often are these seeds holding up? How often are we getting surprises? And then, of course, we have the first-time champions on the U.S. Open side of things. But somebody came in with match-by-match -match data, and it goes as followed. According to Pinnacle Odds, Pinnacle is a sports book. if you bet one unit on every single match— I don't know if this is men and women. This is the only problem with this data. I don't know that if it's men and women or uh, only men. But if you bet on every single match, one unit for the Australian Open, and you only bet on favorites, you have a positive ROI return on investment of 1.7%. If you bet on underdogs every single match in the last 10 years, that's the sample size here, 10 years, significant. You are down 20%. So a 20% negative ROI betting on only underdogs at the Australian Open. Now if we look at the U.S. Open, if you bet on only favorites, you are negative 3.3%. But if you bet on only underdogs, you're only negative 2.2%. So the difference in 
how often you would profit betting on underdogs in the U.S. Open and the Australian Open is enormous. You are way more profitable, albeit you still lose money. Uh, you are way more profitable at the U.S. Open. And by the way, if you're not familiar with with betting, the reason why you would lose money either way is because they're so close and there's a, a tax that you pay to bet. And that tax is really why one of the big reasons why the book always wins and the betters always lose. And that is why um, if you only hit 50% of your bets, you actually end up losing money because of that tax. So just to kind of get into the weeds and explain why that is. So uh, yeah. That is, uh, that's my answer for that. Let's move on. Next one is from Maria. I never played tennis, but love watching tennis. I noticed that a lot of players you mentioned how backhand or forehand is in, is limiting them. Example, Hubie FAA and how particular ground strokes need to be improved. But how hard is it to improve your ground stroke? Is it comfort, ability, or stubbornness, which is understandable? Thanks. So basically the question here is, why do players have... Oh, sorry if I didn't change it here. Basically the question is, why do players struggle with particular ground strokes and you know are unable to kind of figure it out? I mean, this is kind of a million dollar question here. Uh, first of all, habits from a technique standpoint are very, very, very deeply rooted. They, they start from when players are very, very young, and generally those things, you can change them, but it's hard. It's very, very hard to completely change the way you produce a stroke. But I think there's some things that just can't be explained in this respect, where a lot of players have a natural side and an unnatural side. And I think this ex exists at all levels. I mean, for me, my natural side is my forehand. My unnatural side is my backhand. Say, and I've experienced this many, many times, say I do not play tennis for four months because I was injured and I return to the court. I lose very little on my forehand. Like, it is so natural for me to hit that shot that I can spend four months off the court and... I don't lose much on it. On my backhand side, I feel like a novice. I feel like I've never played tennis in my life because my backhand is learned. It does not come natural to me. Uh, my forehand does. And I think pros have that as well. It, it's, it's really hard to explain. Um, but you're going to get some guys... Hercotch on the forehand, Berrettini on the backhand, perhaps Felix on the backhand. You're going to get some guys who are going to go their entire career knowing. I mean, you talk to, to Steve Johnson. I was talking to uh, Gruskin about this. Like, Steve Johnson can't hit a drive backhand. He gets it, man. Like, he understands that this is a problem for him. He would love to have a better two-handed backhand. It's not that simple. It, it's just not. Um, yeah, these things are hard to explain. It's just a part of the sport. From, I'm going to skip this one about Tsitsipas. I don't have a good answer. Um, you mentioned that Chapo has put on more muscle this offseason. How do you think this impacts his 2023 season? That one is from Yashit Bruel. Well, a lot of uh, Shapovalov's errors come down to footwork. So I would hope that he can maintain intensity in his feet a little bit better. And then the second thing is, I do think Shapovalov plays very well. Uh, when he um, is patient and he's able to wait for the short ball before he pulls the trigger and looks to attack. And hopefully with stronger legs, he 
just feels reinforced that he's able to be patient from the back of the court and wait for his moments because that is when Chapo is at his best. Uh, he's an aggressive player, but that doesn't mean you need to have poor shot selection and play low percentage tennis, which Shapovalov can do at times. Next one from Ron Robbie. Um, Hi, Gil. Happy Australian Open. How impressed are you with Sun Wu Kwan? I wasn't very familiar with him a week ago, but I was so impressed with how big his game is for a player who isn't very big or physically imposing. Uh, what do you think his ceiling is? Also, which player, active or retired, does he resemble? To me, he seems like a mix of Ferrer or Nishikori, only with more firepower than both. Uh, good question. Sun Wu Kwan won Adelaide 2, and then he... Uh, lost first round uh, yesterday. Who did he lose to? Let me pull that up quickly because it's a escaping me. Uh, oh yeah, Quan lost to Christopher Eubanks. Congratulations to Eubanks. Uh, wild card. American. Wins in five sets. All right. Quan, uh, I don't think he's like Ferrer and Schwartzman at all, to be completely honest with you. I would compare him to Fanini, if anyone, uh, because you're right. Your observations are correct. Uh, he does have more firepower than Ferrer and Schwartzman, but the firepower is actually what he relies on. He is an aggressive player. Uh, he does not want to dig in physically uh, and grind. It's not what he does. He, um, you know, his serve for five foot eleven is enormous. He can average high one teens on the first serve, and that's the most impressive thing about Quan. Ultimately, though, I do have some some doubts, some suspicions about really how far he can go in his career just because it is not really a uh, a very reliable package that he brings to the court. I mean, I've seen him get hot and be, you know, pretty overwhelming. I mean, it's his second title. He won Nur Sultan in 2021 as well. So that's pretty good to have two titles. But the week-to-week -week consistency isn't really there, and that's because his play style is not one that you often see really uh have it's not it's not a normal tried and true play style that normally has success if you're five foot eleven and you don't want to play long rallies it's hard to have success that way it just is but you know Quan's a good player but I don't see him as a top 20 guy and perhaps you know borderline top 30 is where I kind of see him right now Uh, next one, this is the this was the top liked comment. It got 17 likes from Alex. Why isn't there a single platform where you can watch all of pro tennis, including slams, WTA, and ATP tournaments? I feel like the fragmentation makes the sport harder to follow than it needs to be. Well, the reason is very simple. The reason why the viewing of tennis is fragmented is because the rights holding of tennis is fragmented. Uh, the slams all own the, the rights to their own product. So there's four organizations right there, separate. Then you have the ATP owning the rights to some of their stuff and the WTA owning the rights to some of their stuff. Um, and, and some of it I don't quite understand, to be honest. I need to have a conversation with some people about like when Tennis Australia puts on an event, it seems like 
Uh, it's actually actually Tennis Australia that has the rights. That there are some things that I don't even understand about it, but I do know that it is fragmented. And in terms of that inhibiting the ability for fans to get engaged with the sport, I mean, I think the biggest thing is accessibility, right? I think that fans are okay having to go to different places to watch, but are are these platforms being promoted properly? And quite frankly, are they accessible? Like, I actually think that a platform like YouTube, um, basically some of these internet platforms will probably get involved here if I were to guess in in um, in tennis rights. I know that Amazon Prime in the UK um, has been involved. And, uh, you know, that could go one of two ways. That could, uh, that could bury uh, the sport at times if things are behind a paywall. Very hard for people to uh, get behind a paywall if they're unfamiliar. And then also in, in TV, you have that kind of dynamic of kind of flipping channels and stumbling upon the sport. But I don't actually think that happens anymore in modern media. I think that's a relic of the past. I don't think you get a lot of that. So I think it's okay that tennis has kind of moved to streaming at times. Um, but, I mean, it's something to track and it's something to focus on. I know that I did not give a very well-synthesized answer to that question. But the fact is, that's an enormous question. And, I mean, there's so many different angles to take at at that. It's... It's pretty overwhelming, honestly. But uh, yeah, I, in in the U.S., I think the fact that there's a channel dedicated to tennis, which is Tennis Channel, I think that's uh, quite a good thing for tennis fans. Not to say that Tennis Channel can't do uh, some things better. Uh, you know, obviously, I'm not saying that, but I think the fact that there is a uh, a, a channel dedicated to tennis year-round uh, is is really, really good in the U.S., but I know that not everybody, most countries do not have that. Let me just check on the chat here real quick. Um, as far as the live chat goes, um, if you leave, you are under no obligation to leave a super chat, but if you do, I will make sure to answer it. So I do have one here from Racket Talk. Um, hello from... The boys also at, I think I saw, uh, Game to Love. What's up, Ben? What's up, JG? Uh, what are my thoughts on Shang? I love that lefty forehand. And if that serve uh, continues to develop, I'm pretty high on Jerry Shang, and I'm excited to see that. All right, I do want to get this from Racket Talk. Thank you for the super chat question. Uh, the question is, in your 2023 rankings prediction video, you said Medi will be above Tsitsipas 4 versus 5. Is this mainly because you trust Medi more mentally? Tough choice, though, between the 2 for 4. Wait, between the 2. Oh, for 4 and 5. Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. When I'm predicting one player at 4 and one player at 5, it pretty much means I think they're the same. You know, that's kind of what it means. Uh, but... Ultimately, um, why did I go Medvedev above Tsitsipas? It's it's because I was concerned about some of the things I saw from Tsitsipas mentally last year. I, I mean, there's some good arguments for Stefanos over Medvedev, though. I would say that he is more surface uh, versatile than Medvedev. And uh, in the head-to-head, -head, 
as you saw if you watched my prediction video, I feel really good about the way Tsitsipas has started to play Medvedev head-to-head. There's a, a history of consistency, though, for Medvedev, especially at hardcore Masters 1000s events, that Tsitsipas just has not shown. Like, I have seen year after year after year, up until 2022, I've seen Medvedev really rack up big titles. Not slams, but big titles. I've never seen that from Tsitsipas. Like, the fact that he's only won two Masters, both of them are Monte Carlo, that's probably why I go with the Daniil Medvedev over, over Tsitsipas, because... Daniil has shown already a lot more. All right, let's go back to the comments on YouTube. Again, if you leave a super chat, I will get to it. I'll also try to get to some. Last 10 minutes of this thing, I will go to the chat, and I will try to get to some. Um, hey, Gil, based off what you watched last year, can you rank the 10 best returners on the ATP Tour in 2022? I'm curious how your view compares to the return stats and important nuances those stats don't capture. That comes from Angry Bird Star. I think what this comment is referring to is the fact that sometimes the players who win the, the most return points aren't actually the best returners because the return of serve is one shot. Return of return of serve points are entire points. So sometimes there's there's a disparity there. So... Uh, let's look at return points one percentage. Let's take a look at the stats um, in uh, in 2022. Uh, Schwartzman led the tour. Man, that's surprising because obviously he had such a bad year. I mean, his serve his serve was so bad last year, so bad. So uh, it was Schwartzman. I mean, Schwartzman's obviously a top ten returner. Nadal is second. He's a top ten returner. Alcaraz was third. There's an argument to be made that Alcaraz is a little bit high statistically and that his return of serve is really not that good, but because of his movement and his defense, he's able to kind of make up for that stuff and, and come back from behind because I've seen big servers trouble Alcaraz very, very often. And there's also been matches where I've been frustrated with how few returns Alcaraz is putting in the court, back into the court. So uh, Djokovic is fourth. Yeah, yeah, obviously he's a top three return, so that's pretty close. Uh, Demonor is fifth, Alex Demonor. Yeah, he's a really good returner, really, really good. Sarundalo's fifth? No, see, that's wrong. That, that has a lot to do with really playing awesome on clay, playing more matches on clay, and slow hard courts, you know, Sunshine Double, Sarundalo was good, Miami, he was good. And that just seems too high. Bautista Agut is sixth. Yeah, yeah, that 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 seems about right. Sinner is seventh. I think his return is better than seventh. I think he's one of the, I think he's a top five return in the game. Zverev is eighth. Zverev is eighth. Yeah, yeah. And then Medvedev's ninth, and then Rusevori is tenth. I'm gonna stop there. I don't know. It's uh, it's pretty tough. It's pretty tough. I wonder what my top 10 would have been if I didn't see that and I was just trying to kind of rack my brain and go for it. But uh, that that would take more time than I'm willing to spend on this right now. Let's go to the next one. From Maciek. Is net play becoming the new norm? 
I always felt that pure baseline play exemplified by players like Zverev, Medvedev, was prone to being exposed by crafty volleyers. Of course, the speed of pro tennis is nothing like amateur play, which is what I was basing my opinion on. However, now the latest crop of players, Alcaraz, Runa, Hubie, but also seasoned veterans, Novak, Rafa, uh, are starting to rely on it more with good results. I always felt that the full court usage and more vertical play, uh, such as moving forward, um, was lacking from pro tennis. Do you think volleys will become a must for upcoming players, or is it possible that a pure baseliner consistently beats Carlitos? Yeah, uh, I've said, I've covered this before, but the net play, it will come back from where it was at in the 2010s where it started to really drift away from the game. It will come back because the defense got too good, the movement got too good, and from from a, from a court position perspective, it just is moving further and further and further back. That has a lot to do with string technology and how and how big and strong the athletes have gotten. So players can both attack from the back of the court, from further back. I mean, watch 2000s tennis. In order to do damage, you have to move inside the court. That That's not true anymore. You can hit winners from behind the baseline because of racket speed, modern string technology, strength of the athletes. So why would you move inside the court? If you can do damage from behind the baseline and you can defend better from behind the baseline, well, you should play far back, of course, right? And then, you know, you have dynamic guys like Alcaraz and, and Nadal and Djokovic who are, this is the best case scenario and this is the uh, the modern ideal. They are feeling out a point and they're using their court position dynamically forward and backward based on, on um, kind of offense, defense, neutral. I mean, it's beautiful the way they use their court positioning to their advantage. But in general, yeah, I mean, these guys are getting too good out of the corners, too good defensively, where you have to come to net to finish points. You just have to. I mean, finishing on Daniil Medvedev from the back of the court. God, good luck. I mean, you're toast. You're toast. So... That has been figured out, and you've seen the best net players in the world find that solution and feel that out. And your Tsitsipas and Kyrgios and Djokovic and Nadal, they are beating Daniil Medvedev because they're doing what they got to do in that respect. No doubt about it. Skip this one. Um, I, I'm not going to read all of them now. I'm going to skip some. Um, I like this one from Ayush. Hi, Gil. Any difference between Australian and U.S. Open hardcourts behavior in terms of bounce speed or any other factor? Because uh, Nadal won four U.S. Opens, just two Australian Opens, while Novak, it's the opposite. Uh, can't uh, can't tribute this to mere chance. There must be some backup to it. Do you feel that way? Well, I think there's a combination. First of all, Nadal, over the span of Nadal and Djokovic's careers, the U.S. Open and the Australian Open surface has changed continuously. I mean, we're talking about, and I, I can't run through it, and quite frankly, I can't even, I, I would have to go back and do a little bit of research um, because it's changed so many times. Um, even the manufacturer has changed. But... 
it, it, it's it's mostly not speed. I mean, generally what happened, like if you read Nadal's biography, which came out, I think around like 2013, he was saying about how uh, quick the U.S. Open was when, when he first came up, you know, 2005 to 2010, and the Australian Open was a lot slower for him and it helped him. Then the U.S. Open got way slower, way, way, way slower than the Australian Open. Uh, talking about the late 2010s, U.S. Open got real slow. And, and now they're both pretty quick. Um, a lot of it is finals luck, though. Like Nadal at the Australian Open, he has um, he's lost a ton of finals, right? I think he, he lost four finals in a row before losing to Medvedev. And he's had a, a terrible bill of health. His injury history has been awful in Australia, which is which is just wild because it's the first event of the year, pretty much. But that's just how it's been. Where Djokovic has had a lot more misfortune in New York. You know, you look at uh, 2020, big lost opportunity. That shoulder injury against Stan um, that he had. The you know the the calendar spot in 2021. He loses to Medvedev in the final, and the big reason why he kind of lost that final was what had happened before that. You know, he he was exhausted from, first of all, feeling all that pressure throughout the tournament, therefore not playing his best, having to work way too hard mentally and physically in every single match there. And by the finals, he's toast, but it was also an Olympic year, and, you know, he had to play after Wimbledon. That was mentally draining. I mean, it was a disaster. So, you know... You go through the history and you start to make sense of things, but I don't think uh, right now. I think both are fast, so there's not much. Uh, there's not much to it. What do we got here? Um... Let's go to uh, let's go to Thonkos, who's a member. Thank you for being a member. Um, I was wondering if you could go more in depth on why you picked Medvedev to defeat Nadal in the quarters. I'm all for it. I'm a big Medvedev fan, but I just don't see it happening. Assuming the matchup actually happens, so sometimes I'm not picking based on you know head-to-head -head X's and O's. Sometimes I'm picking based off of of uh, of level, and I'm keeping it very simple. And my mindset going into the tournament, and Nadal's round one match over Draper only confirmed this viewpoint. My mindset is that Nadal will likely be capable of very, very good tennis at this year's Australian Open. But I just did not, before the tournament, and still do not, see him getting to a point where he is capable of championship-level tennis, which means that physically, he's strong enough, and... From a confidence standpoint, he is secure enough where in the in the biggest moments against the opponents who are good enough to push him into high pressure, high leverage situations, Nadal is going to be able to come up with the goods and execute offensive tennis um, because he can no longer do what he used to do early in his career, which is when, when things get really, really tight, just kind of lean on the legs and his movement and kind of become a wall. You know, he can't do that anymore. So the reason why I have Nadal beating, I had him beating Draper, beating Brandon Nakashima, it's going to end up being Mackie McDonald, uh, 
ultimately beating Francis Tiafo is because I think Nadal can get to a good enough level to beat those level of players. Daniil Medvedev, I, I believe, is another story. I think you have to play championship-level tennis to beat Daniil Medvedev uh, here at this Australian Open. That's the the level that I'm assuming Medvedev to, to be at for this two weeks, and I just don't think Nadal will have that in him. I also am worried about Rafa working, having to work very, very hard each and every match because of his draw and being a little bit burnt out come the quarterfinals. And if you want history to kind of look to, I would I would look at Australian Open 2021, where Rafa came in, I thought, pretty out of shape because he had a back injury. He had to pull out of ATP Cup. He was not in good shape coming into the Australian Open. And he was good enough to reach the quarterfinals. And he actually looked very good. Now he got a good draw. Then he ran up against Stefano Tsitsipas, won the first two sets, and collapsed physically. And Tsitsipas came back to uh, to beat Rafa. I could just... That's what I have in mind. I could see something very similar to that happening. Where Nadal's good enough to beat these guys until Medvedev. It has nothing to do with the, the matchup, which I, I think, generally speaking... Nadal knows how to beat Medvedev. Like, he he does. It's a good head-to-head for Nadal. Hi, Gil. Every year we have sportsmanship awards in tennis. If you were to give a top three most sporting and top three most disrespectful, what would they be? So I hate the sportsmanship award. Despise it. I think it's so stupid that people get worked up about it, about who wins and who doesn't. I don't know. I mean, come on. Like... It's a tie, all right? Like, there are many tennis players who have excellent sportsmanship, and they are all tied for good sportsmanship. No, I can't say who's number one in the world in freaking sportsmanship. Who's most disrespectful? I can do that, though. Ostapenko. Um... Who else is like just really, I don't think anyone reaches her level in terms of just insulting opponents after the match. So I think she's first. <laughs> I mean, she's just ruthless at the, at, at times. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I mean, Kyrgios at number two, you know, I mean, he doesn't care about, he doesn't care about this stuff, but I would say Kyrgios number two. Um, and then sportsmanship. Let's go. Uh, let's go with let's go with Brooksby. Let's go with Jensen Brooksby. Now, let me make something really clear about my view on this. And I, I tweeted this. Somebody disagreed, but I think most people agree with me here. Some people will disagree. I do not look at a pl- uh, someone's sportsmanship and make judgments about their character. And I think it's an awful mistake to do so. I think that you can compete with tremendous sportsmanship and in the public eye and on, you know, when it comes to playing a tennis match and shaking hands with your opponent and giving them a hug and saying the right things about them after after the match, I think you can do all those things, be a god-awful person. I think you can be someone who is abusive behind closed doors, you know, terribly narcissistic, treats people in their lives horribly. Like, you can be a horrendous person and have good sportsmanship and vice versa. 
You can be an absolute angel. You can be a, a, a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful person. Um, there was actually a feature about Yulia Putinseva that I loved by Alex McPherson, uh, which was about how Putinseva is kind of a devil on the court and an angel off the court. That can be the case too. You can be a, a an awful person uh, in terms of sportsmanship and our stuffy unwritten rules about tennis, but then be a really good person in reality. So when I say, you know, Kyrgios, uh, Ostapenko, right? Like when I say these people who don't really have maybe great sportsmanship, I'm not calling them bad people. I'm not. Um, and we don't, we don't know these guys. And I, I would really, again, I can't emphasize it enough. You should, uh, you should not assume you know who these people are. You do not. You do not, based on how they act on the court. All right, I'm going to do just a couple more from YouTube, and then let's go to the live chat, all right? Uh, another one from a member here. It comes from Abhishek. Hey, Gil, if you had to rank the top 10 movers, not just speed, but overall movement in tennis today, who would you pick? And let me give you five. Ten is too many, but I am going to go with Medvedev, Alcaraz, Djokovic. This is in no particular order. Medvedev, Alcaraz, Djokovic, Michael Emer, Alex Dimonor. Those are my top five. I think uh, I would consider Tsitsipas in there. I would... Uh, who else? Who else? I'm definitely missing some people, but I don't. I, I want to move on. Let's go to the next one. Who do you think has a higher ceiling? Oh, this is from the same person. So let's let's go to someone else. Um, hey, Gil, huge fan of your content. This time, my answer will be different. You mean your question? I want to ask about the WTA. Every time I see Garcia playing, I feel like where was she all these years? Her game style is born to get slams. Do you think she is able to win a slam or uh, maybe even try to compete with Sviantec for the number one spot? Uh, yeah, actually, that's funny you ask about Caroline Garcia because, uh, and sorry for those of you who didn't see the full comment, I'll flash it up here. It's funny you ask about Caroline Garcia because she's probably my pick to win it on the women's side. Um, not that I would doubt Sviantec. I mean, she is the rightful favorite, but uh, I do think Iga has a pretty bad draw. Um, and I'm curious to see if somebody can execute a a similar match that Pagula did at United Cup, just taking all the time away, going hard to that forehand, aggressive on the return of serve. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, these are good servers conditions. And by the way, low bouncing, pretty low bouncing, which uh, is also not awesome for Iga. Again, she's still rightfully the favorite. But man, Garcia, I mean, the biggest difference that I saw in Caroline Garcia, first of all, she imploded mentally. Everybody knows that. She's the first to admit that. She couldn't handle the expectations that came with her swift rise to number four in the world way back when. I think it was 20, was it 2018? But uh, if you watch Caroline Garcia when she was really, really struggling, she was not charging the net to this extent. She, she was not using her volleys. Uh, she was... Still a very aggressive player, but she was an error machine because she was trying to finish from the back of the court. Her shot selection was her shot selection was untenable. You know, it was just so aggressive. It was so recklessly offensive. 
and she she didn't make balls and she didn't put returns in the court um and now she's gone from someone who looks to be offensive with her power and she's become someone who is not offensive because of power uh, she's offensive because she takes away time and because she's the best volleyer in the world in singles. You can talk to me about doubles and what Katarina Sinyakova does in doubles or what Coco Goff does in doubles. That's a totally different kind of volleying. In singles, gimme Garcia. I think she's the best volleyer uh, on the WTA tour. Um, she also does a good job of exploiting the kind of attackable second serves that you often see on the WTA tour. Um, now, a lot of players try to do that, but the way Garcia tries to use time to her advantage and the fact that she's not uncomfortable hitting returns from no man's land, which I will put in air quotes, uh, because she's she's very much willing to just come in behind her return. So, you know, a lot of players, they uh, they are unable to kind of execute that return strategy because either they, they feel like they need more time or they're not comfortable kind of in that court position because they don't like to move forward. So Garcia is uh, is fascinating to watch, uh, really in the top five for me of, of players to, to watch um, in terms of entertainment value because of her style. And by the way, she's got a top five serve in women's tennis. Somebody asked me in this comment section, can I find it here? Can I find it? Um, who asked me this? I'll keep scrolling. Somebody asked me top five serves in women's tennis. And I believe that there's kind of a uh, a big five. All right, I'm not going to keep looking for it. Um, my software isn't that good uh, for, for doing this because it's very hard for me to see the text. Anyway, uh, yeah, I, I think there's a clear big five in, in women's tennis with serving. Osaka, Rybakina, Garcia, uh, Samsonova, and Zhang Xinwen. The, uh, the young Chinese player. Pliskova kind of used to be up there. It's not quite there. Kudermatova, borderline, not quite there. Sabalenka, Kvitova, not quite there. I feel like there's a big five there. Garcia, Rybakina, Osaka, uh, Samsonova, and Zhang Shinwen. All right, let me go to the live chat. Let's go to the live chat. Let's see if uh, any super chats... Thanks for becoming a member to Kathy. Um, super chats, super chats. No. Okay. So now I will, I will read through your comments. From Alex Ellis, uh, how do you like Tiafo's chances against Nadal in a potential round of 16 match? I mean, right now I actually don't love Nadal's chances, but we got to see how this plays out. Um, don't say Steph. I, I have seen, I don't know if it's if it's the same comment. I have seen people saying don't say Steph. I hear tons of people saying saying Steph, like everybody. I'm hardly the only one. I don't think that uh I think I've heard Stefano say it. I think I have. So I, I feel like that's I don't think that's like a westernized thing. Uh but also also something that some people don't understand about uh tennis broadcasting that I see a lot, you know, some people are like, why do, why do commentators say the Greek, right? Or why do tennis players, uh, commentators say FAA? It sounds bad to say the same things over and over and over again. The ear doesn't like it. So that's why when I'm talking about someone like Tsitsipas, 
I might say Tsitsipas on first reference, and then Stefanos, and then Steph, and then, you know what I mean? And then kind of rotate it, and then the Greek, and then the world number, uh, then the world number four. Like, you want to change the way you're saying it. So, I will not stop saying Steph. I'm going to keep saying it um, because I think it's fine. All right. Um, Rublev, this is from David. Yeah, Rublev team is coming up. Um, first up, I'm I'm very excited to uh, see that. Uh, High H asked, uh, Court is, or he didn't ask, he said, Court is slower this year in Australia. It seems a little bit deader, not quite as lively. Um, the, the bounce doesn't seem quite as... As lively. Something to watch. Uh, Murray Berrettini is also a big one coming up. Uh, Miles says that Murray will beat Berrettini. Um... Oh, I'm I'm sorry, Ira. I I I didn't realize you were uh, saying don't say Steph to the sportsmanship comment. I get it now. Um, I have I just got a comment way back that said stop saying Steph Gill. It's so American. Um, it's so American of you to say Steph, and that's what I was responding to. All right, here's a question from Ghibli. Can we foresee Chapo making it to the top ten ever, or is he not consistent enough? Nor has a high enough ceiling in his game beyond his offense. No, I absolutely think that Chapo can be a top 10 player. I think that's so, so, so evident. Uh, he needs to manage... Like, man, there's so much room for him to kind of grow um, from just staying disciplined in the shot selection, physically making sure not to break down and keeping the intensity in his footwork, as I said a lot earlier in this, uh, in this mailbag, managing matches, you know, perhaps just being less emotional is going to help him manage the ebbs and flow of matches. I mean, he reacts to every single point. Uh, it's it's an absolute roller coaster with him uh, mentally and emotionally. But uh, just with with his ball striking talent and his offensive repertoire, the fact that, like, technically speaking, he even has some. I think he shows some good promise in his ability to hit block returns and slice backhands uh, so that he can put more balls in the court when he's rushed. All of these things are positive, and I think Chapeau will get in the top 10 at some point because he absolutely should. Uh, the question that I have for, for, for Dennis is, does he want that? Does he really, 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 really want that? Because when I got really discouraged about Shapovalov's future, it had nothing to do with how he was playing. It had nothing to do with my take on his abilities. It had to do with some of the things that he was saying, uh, the fact that he wasn't improving whatsoever. And in conjunction, in conjunction, those two things, it just seemed like Chapel was content. And some players can get content. Some players admit that they got content. Tiafo has talked a lot about that. Francis uh, really broke through into the top 50 in 2018. And once you become a top 50 tennis player or even a top 30 tennis player, and you're making good money on the tour, Life is good. You're getting into every tournament you need to get into. Players react to that in different ways. 
either you're satisfied or you're not, or you're not satisfied. And when Shapovalov made the Wimbledon semifinal and was horrible the rest of the year after making the Wimbledon semifinal, and he was asked what happened, he said, like, yeah, you know, I kind of felt like I peaked for the year and I, I just had a, I had a let off. Like, basically, he said, I lost motivation because I had, a, I had that huge result and I felt, I felt satisfied. You can't get fat and happy. And, I mean, you can, but it's going to really hurt your career. And that's the kind of thing that I've heard from Shapovalov at times that has been really, really concerning. So, is Shapovalov, as a top 20 player, just based off of his abilities, is he going to be like, that's not good enough? I have to get better? Or is he going to be like, I'm good. I'm cool. This is great. Everything's fine. That's going to really determine to me, in my estimation, what the future is for him. From Jack, thank you for the super chat. Uh, ball kids with nets, yay or nay? Based on your experience as a ball boy. Um, no, no, screw nets. I mean, I wish at the U.S. Open we still had uh, we still had the the ball kids throwing it from the back of the court. Ball people, I should say. Um, you shouldn't need nets. I mean. I understand that it makes it more inclusive. Like, if you're less athletic, you can still get the, the feeling of being a ball person. But, I mean, part of my experience there was, uh, was, was rewarding because it, you know, was kind of hard to, to make it. So, I could see the, again, I think that would be the, the advantage to Nets is that you can be not very coordinated and still do it. Uh, people underestimate how hard it is. And look, I'm not saying I'm a Navy SEAL here. I'm just saying that there are a lot of regular civilians out there who can't run at full speed and pick up a tennis ball off of the court without really messing up. You got to be able to do it maybe 19 out of 20 times. You can mess up maybe one in 20 times. You got to pretty much be able to do it every time uh, or it's a problem. You'd be surprised like how many people can't do that, whether their fingers aren't nimble enough, whether they're just not really comfortable kind of bending down after being in that full sprint. It could be a lot of things, but it, it, it can be kind of hard. And I don't think, you know, I think that's fine. By the way, nets don't look good. Huh? They don't look very good. I don't like the aesthetic. Am I elitist? Was that an elitist opinion? Maybe. I don't know. From Kun and Co. Thank you for the super chat. Hi, Gil. Consuming your content here. Thank you for that. You clearly are. Uh, let's say Nadal wins AO. How would you assess Djokovic's situation if that happens in terms of history? I mean, look, this slam race is important, man. This slam race is important. And... You know, last year was uh, was big in two ways. It was big that Nadal pulled ahead. It was also big that in a year where Djokovic missed two out of the four, he still won one. You know, that Wimbledon was huge. So, you know, it, it's fairly obvious right now where we stand that Djokovic's body is holding up a little bit better than Rafa's. So, you know, Nadal 
in order to kind of win this thing at the end, he probably needs to keep chugging along and, and build a, a little bit of a cushion here, a little bit of a lead. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what it means for history. It's just about what is this tally going to look like when they both hang it up? And as much as I have kind of rejected the GOAT debate as like a really good way to discuss these guys in their place in history, I think it's a, a pretty crappy way to discuss these guys. The slam race is important, and I, I will never uh, shy away from that. Who do you think is the better uh, player at net between Nadal and Djokovic? Nadal, I think his hands are better. I think his hands are better. His drop volleys are really, really awesome, Rafa's. Djokovic, uh, Djokovic has good volleys, but uh, not quite as good at just deadening the pace um, and, and executing that drop volley. Do you think Martin Fucevic is a bit of an underachiever? Not at all. Not at all. I mean, he's gotten himself in the best shape possible. And, you know, he's just not... He, Especially on the forehand side, his, his timing isn't great. He, he isn't the cleanest ball striker. But mentally, he's very strong. The fitness is incredible, which takes a lot of hard work. So uh, to me, Fucevic is putting the hard yards to be as good as he possibly can be. It's just that off of the ground, especially on the forehand side, you know, he's 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 not as gifted as some other guys. Who's going to win, Rublev versus Team? I think Rublev will win. Rublev's won four straight over Team. Uh, the way he takes time away, hugs the baseline, kind of pushes Team back. It just doesn't look like Domi. Uh, is comfortable with how little time he has when he's facing Rublev. Uh, yeah, big big win for Lloyd Harris. Some of you guys in the comments are talking about that. I'm very high on Pagula for the title. Your thoughts? That's from Pia. Um, did I miss a, a super chat? Let me answer this first, and then I'll go back. Um, Pagula, man, I mean, the knock on Pagula is that she can't beat the top guns, right? That she's a quarterfinal machine, a semifinal machine, but, you know, she just can't finish her runs. I mean, that win at the United Cup, that's a big deal for her. And uh, let's see how she does because she's been really good in Australia. Yeah, I did see that pick of Fucevic after the match. Absolutely insane how jacked he is, huh? All right. Apparently, I missed a super chat from South Nicosia. So let me go back here. Oh, here it is. Um, I posted in the YouTube community tab for gender pay gap. Uh, why didn't you copy paste it here though? I don't know what the question is. All right, I'll give you an answer here and then I'll end on this. Even though I don't know what your question is, I'm going to try to guess what you were asking and still answer. There's been a lot of talk about uh, pay here, pay gap. Um, and there was a really big piece in ESPN about... Um, good piece in ESPN about how lower-ranked players, kind of the painting the picture of how difficult it is for them to make a living on the circuit. Uh, it was a good piece. I recommend. I recommend you read it. It was from Darcy Main, ESPN. Um, but I will say this: I think that the discourse around uh, players getting paid is oftentimes pretty off here. 
Uh, what's very important in terms of distribution is that the players are being offered a fair cut. Um, and unfortunately, too much of the conversation is about the fact that the players aren't being paid as much as they want to be paid or perhaps should be paid relative to other sports. Talking about lower-ranked players especially. And I'll, I'll bring this to women. I'll try to bring this to women as best I can. Um, there's not enough talk about revenue generation. That is really, really important. At the lower levels of tennis... How can we generate more revenue at that level of tennis? That is, that's that's the solution that needs to be looked for. That's what we need to talk about. Not how can we distribute the money differently? Because right now, there's very little, ev uh, little evidence to me that the money is being disproportionately distributed relative to the how much revenue is being generated to the top of the sport, okay? Very little evidence to me. I think doubles is getting subsidized. I think if you are losing first round on an outer court at a major, you are earning more money than how much revenue you generated for the tournament. I do. I think you're being subsidized. I don't think you're being underpaid there based on how much money you're producing. Now, am I blaming the players for that? No, not necessarily. I am not blaming the players for that. Um, but... Uh, I do think that that needs to be the the point of discussion is what can the tours do? Uh, how can the funding be better so that there's resources in marketing, in the broadcast product, um, in the storytelling, in the distribution of the matches? How can these things be adjusted so that we're maximizing the revenue that challenger level tennis, ITF level tennis is generating? Until that happens... Or you can show me that they are not getting a fair cut of the revenue that they are earning. Unless you can show me that, well, then we're talking about the wrong thing here. Noah Rubin had a quote in this ESPN piece that basically said, why don't we take a million dollars out of Djokovic's championship, or, or sorry, the champion's prize money and put it into qualifying? Yeah, that's great. Okay, I wouldn't be opposed to that. I wouldn't be against that. That would make me feel good because I want these athletes to get paid. But can you prove to me that that's not charity? Can you prove to me that, that there's a reason for this outside of charity? Outside, oh, I just spilled my water. Hold on. All right, we're going to end the live chat there because I am now concerned about the water. Um, so I am going to get a paper towel clean this up. This has never happened to me, by the way. And we are going to have to end the live chat. Um, hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I will see you next time.